Hi, everyone. I'm really happy to be sitting in person with Ilya Markov, who's the, uh, he's a growth marketer. He's got seven years of experience in B2B SaaS. He's worked with companies like Groove, Animals, and Hubstaff to help them achieve sustainable growth. And currently, Ilya is the head of content marketing at Chart Mogul. So welcome, Ilya. Thank you for having me in Paris. Glad to be here in person, sitting with you. Yeah, I have to say it's a real treat to, to do one of these interviews in person. It's very rare for me. And hopefully um, we, can, we can take advantage of this, this live dynamic to have some fun. I'm sure. Uh, do you want to start off with just telling our audience a, a little bit about who you are and what you do? Sure. Uh, so, you know, as you put it, um, I've been doing, uh, you know, digital marketing, focusing on SaaS brands for the last six, seven years. Um, before that, um, I was in the States for a while. Uh, I got an MBA degree from the University of Michigan, got really into college sports, you know, basketball and American football, as we call it here. Uh, then came back to, and, and developed that interest in, you know, technology, um, internet companies and so on. And after I came back to Bulgaria, I knew it was kind of what I wanted to do. So uh, you can you can say that I've been living the dream for the last few years. Can I just quickly ask you about your sports background? Because I also played American football. Oh, no, I didn't play. I was just like as a fan, you know. Oh, OK. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So just... Uh, I guess tailgating is like my, my sports background. I'm sure you know yeah. what it means. Oh, yeah, yeah. <laughs> Maybe not all. And University of Michigan has a major, Huge. major sports tradition there. Yeah, yeah exactly. Across lots exactly. of sports, basketball. That's what got me. And football, yeah. That's what got me. By the way, something that maybe doesn't sound like would be surprising to some, ice hockey is really fun to watch. Ice hockey is Live. amazing. Live, yeah. yeah. Like if you go to the rink. It's, yeah, it's amazing. It's I, so dynamic. I agree. I've been to only one live ice hockey game in my life, the New York Rangers, and it was a totally different experience. Mm -hmm. You can see the speed and the size yeah, of the players. Yeah. And it's like the it's very aggressive. It's almost like a you know boxing on on ice. Yeah. Well, sometimes it really is boxing it, on ice. Yeah, yeah, that's true. <laughs> yeah, that's cool. And so you made your way back to Bulgaria. Can I just ask what what brought you back to Bulgaria? Uh, family, friends. You know my life here um, mm -hmm. uh, you know i kind of always have a bit of a challenge answering that because um, i never really considered staying in the us um like I, I enjoyed living there but it was like oh saw it as a you know you know a time framed experience um and i was kind of optimistic that you know i can uh, have a good career development even like living in bulgaria Mm -hmm. um so i think it happened to me you know so far it's yeah. been it's been good um something i didn't mention in the beginning that i've been working remotely for the last four or five years even before mm -hmm. the pandemic so mm -hmm. you know um when 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 the first lockdown started i was joking with some colleagues that uh, you know i didn't know my kind of my lifestyle was called uh, quarantine <laughs> you know I've been, <laughs> yeah i've been working from home for the last few years so it's interesting nothing new for me I think that there are a lot of listeners that would be really uh, interested in how you were able to, to pull that off. Can, do you have any advice for uh, other professionals here that would be interested in working for international companies mm -hmm. uh, while being based in Bulgaria? Uh, sure. Um, I can provide a lot of advice. Um, and of course, I can like, only hope it would be useful to, to your listeners. But I think the most important thing is to treat um, first of all, to treat yourself as a brand, so to invest into developing your name as a brand. Like if you want to be a, maybe a marketing consultant or if you want to work full time for companies, you still need a personal brand. Mm -hmm. um, and that means, um, you know, being present on social media, being professional on social media, uh, having your own website, publishing your own content, uh, just you know, pretty much doing any everything uh, uh, like a proper SaaS or any type of brand would do, just mm -hmm. doing it for yourself. Um, and then the other thing is, if you're looking for a job or if you're looking for freelancing opportunities, doesn't matter. Just treat that as a job itself. So you need to spend, I don't know, X hours a day. If you don't have another job and like you want to secure a full-time job, you need to put in six or eight hours and just look for the opportunities. Uh, make sure you, you get, you're a good fit because now there are many opportunities that come out every day and um, most companies get 
over 200 applications for, for a single position. Mm -hmm. And you can realize that for a single person looking through resumes, it's really hard to stand out. So you need to take those extra steps to develop, maybe find a way to connect with the hiring manager personally that always works very well, at least in my experience. Um, like even at the point where you, it might sound, you know, spammy, like reaching mm -hmm. cold, you know, doing cold outreach to hiring managers. Mm -hmm. uh, might sound spammy to some, but it, it, in some cases it will work and it might uh, mm -hmm. secure, secure you your job. And the last thing is, you know, don't uh, don't lose hope. Uh, don't get pessimistic. You just need one yes. You know, to find a job, you just need one yes, one company to say yes to you. You can get 100 or 99 no's, but if you get one yes, that's all you need. Mm -hmm. Thanks for that. That was great. And, and I think especially now that there's been a pretty permanent shift in acceptance of remote work, I think a lot of companies are so much more open to hiring from anywhere in the world now than previously they were pre-pandemic. And I think that's going to be one of the changes that stays with us permanently. And I believe that's that's just a great thing for for globalization as a whole. Yeah, yeah, I agree. The best talent, the best talent can find the best companies now more than ever. What I think has happened over the last year. Yeah, of the last year now. Um, I've seen a graphic which shows how like e-commerce just accelerated by, you know, e-commerce just jumped 10 years or so thanks to the pandemic. Mm -hmm. uh, so maybe we went from like, I don't know, 15% of total retail or something going, you know, being going through e-commerce to now, I don't know, 25% or something like that. And that's not coming back. I mean, there was like mm -hmm. an initial spike, then it probably went down a little bit, mm -hmm. but we're still like 10% well, or something yeah, yeah. like that. And well, that's not going back. And the same, it's it's the same with remote work. You just move the whole thing 10 years mm -hmm. forward. Because even before the pandemic, we could see that remote work was the right. future and yeah. you know more companies were opening to mm -hmm. it. And now you have even huge companies. You have uh, Shopify, you have um, um, who else? Um, there was like a very big announcement last week. Uh, sales, Salesforce, I think they gradually drift, mm -hmm. you know, another huge mm -hmm. SaaS company. Uh, but, you know, Shopify is a company with thousands of employees and now they're remote first. Mm -hmm. Oh, so they they announced that they were going to be yeah, entirely yeah, remote, yeah. no more offices. And, well, I, I think maybe like have... Drift is keeping their offices, but they want to rethink them as places where people gather from time to time to yeah. when they need to collaborate. But like the, the, the default... Uh, workplace is mm -hmm. the home office or, or the corporate or whatever you want to be in the world. Yeah, yeah. exactly. Yeah. Excellent. Well, and I, I see that pretty quickly in, in your career, you, you seem to lock in on content marketing. And I, I can see from your background. Yeah. You can going back to, was Hubstaff the first? Uh, yeah, Hubstaff experience? was my first uh, like full time. I mean, my first full time experience where I was just focusing on content. But even before mm -hmm. that, I was like already writing and, uh, mm -hmm. and you know, uh, working on like things like strategy and thinking about that. Mm -hmm. um, but uh, Hubstaff was a great opportunity to um, just gain a lot of experience quickly. Um, not, you know, not the least because uh, they already had like very good basis with content, the company even before I joined. But um, my task there was to pretty much structure the content program mm -hmm. and then scale it yeah um which was a great experience for me and and i really learned a lot there i'd like to i'd like to dive a little deeper there because we we see and talk to a lot of companies and SaaS companies where they're turning out huge reams of content mm -hmm. and across different formats lots of practically daily blog posts uh, thought leadership pieces like mm -hmm. ebooks and white papers a lot of them are getting into podcasts, but they have a content machine. And yet I look at uh, their organic traffic and I know that's not the only goal of content marketing, but I see their organic traffic is flat. Um, why, why does that happen? Um, help us understand why sometimes just the sheer volume of content produced is, uh, is not always enough to, to be effective. Um, I don't think it's a volume play anymore. I don't think it do it ever was a volume player, though some companies, you know, had success with volume, but I don't think even for them, like volume was the leading, the leading factor. Um, I think quality should come first. 
like look at scaling the quality first and then scale the volume. Because uh, if you nail down the quality, then you can, you know, expand, you know, mm-hmm. expanding the volume just brings you more uh, ROI from, from every piece of output. Um, mm-hmm. So what I see with some companies is that they see some really success with it, with content. Um, and sometimes it's like a matter of a, a lucky strike. You publish something, it starts ranking well, and it brings you a lot of uh, uh, traffic and uh, leads and trials and whatever, whatever you mm-hmm. like go is with content. Um, but then just because it was, you know, because it was a lucky strike, they, okay, they say, oh, this is working. Let's put more money into it mm-hmm. um, or more resources, more effort, whatever. Uh, but if they lack the strategic piece about like how they go about, uh, how they attract people to their content and what they do with these people after that, they, it, the, the benefit they see from their early successes starts to wear off. Mm-hmm. Um, so, you know, what I always suggest to companies is that they need to, to think strategically about their content. And that includes, includes things like even keyword research. So making sure you're going after specific keyword keywords that would work for, for your product. Um, you know, many companies, they produce content without thinking about how they're going to distribute it. And SEO is part of distribution. Uh, you know, you're putting out something, you're hoping that someone will pick it up. Maybe you reach like the first page of Hacker News or whatever, but that's, uh, you know, that's uh, like playing the lottery. You know, mm-hmm. it's not a strategic effort. You, you don't know what's gonna. You're just relying on a, on a, having another look strike, mm-hmm. and I don't think that's a sustainable strategy. Yeah, I like the concept of a lucky strike because I, I have seen that countless times. And I think even with a great strategy, you still hit those lucky strikes from time to time. I'm curious as to, um, in a lot of ways, I think of really effective content marketing as putting yourself in a better position to get lucky more often mm-hmm. because inevitably exactly. I think the 80, 20 rule will always apply to some degree, meaning yeah. that uh, 80% of the benefits are perhaps the traffic will still accrue to maybe 20 or perhaps even 10% of the, the actual content. But by setting up a good strategy and executing well and, and getting discipline into the process, you increase the frequency of the lucky strikes. Yeah. You put yourself in a position to be lucky more often, but I'm still um, sometimes baffled by um, a post where there's a massive amount of effort and a huge amount of optimism and it fails. And then there's another post where sometimes we might just throw something out quickly and it just hits. And um, and that, that's part of, I guess, what the fun is because it's all, there are always surprises still uh, about what, what stuff really, I won't say viral, but you have such a range of performance when you're producing content day in and day out. And um, and it's not always obvious why, because if it was, then you could just replicate that lucky strike. And um, maybe some companies have gotten close to doing that, but that's that's my experience with it. Sure. But at the same time, if, you know, those like really successful pieces, those lucky strikes, if they were, uh, you know, if there was like a way to make sure we always get them and reproduce them, there wouldn't be wouldn't, any bad content. Wouldn't everybody? Yeah. Yeah. It would be just, you know, amazing pieces right. that connect with the right audience and, and that's it. Mm-hmm. And at the same time, we know that we live at that, um, you know, at the age of content overload or, mm-hmm. or whatever you might want to call it. But, um, you know, I guess the point I want to make is just think about the quality, think about the strategy, um, put effort into the content you're producing, um, even if it's at the expense of cadence and, and like not publishing every week mm-hmm. uh, or not publishing every day. It really depends on the resources you're putting into it. Um, and um, I'm sure that's going to, you know, produce better, better results. And mm-hmm. like, it really depends, but uh, on the on the company and the product. But you know, some of the brands I work with, uh, they have a very large, um, you know, lifetime value per customer. So even one piece of content, even like if you convert just one customer, it's more than enough to you know. You can still have a huge ROI. On exactly. So what if you what if you hit the front page of Hacker News, but that piece of content never uh, converts even one customer? 
just because it connects with a completely different audience that doesn't care about your product. You, you're selling a MarTech solution and uh, mm-hmm. Hacker News is uh, frequented by developers mostly, I mm-hmm. feel like. So what if you get in front of many developers with your uh, MarTech mm-hmm. product? Yeah. Yeah, that's a good point, ultimately. And I think this is a, a good segue into the analytics part, which is the the focus of Chart Mobile, I, mm-hmm. I believe, is to help help SaaS companies uh, get a better handle on their analytics. Do you help those SaaS companies also get a better understanding of the value and ROI from their, their content marketing efforts? Sure. Um, it's not the main focus. Um, I mean, just to tell you a little bit about Chart Mobile, we're a subscription data platform. Um, and... You know, SaaS is probably our main segment, but we have, you know, different type of subscription companies uh, who use Chartmogul to bring in their uh, revenue data um, Mm -hmm. from whatever they're using, if they're using Stripe or if they're using the, you know, the Apple App Store, uh, like billing solution or -hmm. or if they're using Mm -hmm. multiple solutions, they can use Chartmogul to bring all data in one place and just analyze it and understand what like what insight hides behind their data. Uh, so you can do things like cohort analysis, segmentation, and things like that, which is which is really useful. And a lot of companies are um, you know finding specific ways to grow using that data. Um, so our you know uh, the reason I'm saying this is that uh, you know the, the main focus of the platform is um, probably like the C-level founders, uh, CFOs, uh, people who are on, like in the finance department. I know that sales teams uh, use Chartmogul a lot, but something we see lately is that product teams also use Chartmogul a lot. And uh, part of the reason is that the platform is very versatile. So they, it can be used in many different ways to understand different things. And it can be used to measure the impact of content marketing as well. Uh, or, or just marketing. Uh, you can because we allow, for example, we allow our users to assign um, what we call custom attributes to every customer. So, for example, you can say, okay, this customer first engaged with our brand through the blog, or you can just say, you know, if you do the automation, you can say, okay, they read this specific piece of content. Mm-hmm. Um, they talk to, you know, customer agent or sales agent, John or Mary or whatever. Uh, and then you can see how they're progressing over time. So it's not just, mm-hmm. you know, seeing the initial conversion, but you can see what happens with them. Maybe they engage mm-hmm. with your content and you see that they are growing their, mm-hmm. their footprint. Could uh, you do something like just look at two different types of cohorts? One who was converted to a customer without being exposed pr- prior to any real content. So maybe they had really like fast track straight to the bottom of the funnel, uh, perhaps through paid advertising. Mm-hmm. And then another cohort where there's a longer journey where you really nurture them from the top of the funnel with content through middle funnel. Absolutely. And you could actually see the difference in lifetime value between those two cohorts. Absolutely. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. And if you play um, a little bit with it and like that's the long-term vision of the platform where, you know, it sits in the middle of your data stack. And it allows you to do many things. It allows you to bring in data from different places. So maybe you bring in revenue data from Stripe, but you also bring data from HubSpot or from CRM mm-hmm. uh, if you're using I don't know Zendesk Cell or something like that. Uh, and it like you can say, okay, oh, oh like uh, product engagement data, how they're using the product. Mm-hmm. Um, and you say, and we actually have customers who do that. Because um, mm-hmm. also write. Um, Customer stories is what we call case studies at Chartmogul. And I interview customers for those and I hear very interesting like use cases of how they use Chartmogul. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and you can bring all this data into Chartmogul and then use that data to you know fire like specific actions. So mm-hmm. maybe someone uh, I don't know went like they changed their plan and you can send them an email or you like you use some kind of customer success tool that's telling you that a specific customer is at uh, risk of churning and you know mm-hmm. from your revenue data from Stripe that this is a high value customer for you. So that maybe creates a task for your customer success team to get in touch with this customer and make sure they try to save them. So mm-hmm. things like that. That's the, that's the, that's the vision. 
mm-hmm. um, and the same can be done with with content. Uh, maybe you know that a customer, you know, as part of their journey uh, before converting, they read a specific piece of content, so you can like analyze how that mm-hmm. performed, and that type of like segmentation that you're mentioning, mm-hmm. looking at different cohorts, is exactly what you can do with it. Yeah, that's really interesting. I want to I want to come back to something that you just mentioned, which is uh, what you call them customer stories, mm-hmm. which are similar to a case study format, mm-hmm. and, you, and you get that through in, actually interviewing yeah. the customers. Yeah, right? yeah, just um, yeah. sit down with the customer for half an hour, one hour, how how you know how much they can spare, and we just talk through how they how mm-hmm. they use um, chart model. We have like a template of questions that we use, but. Um, uh, you know, we always try to have an open conversation with the customers and give them a chance to share their, mm. you know, their... Do you find that when you have those conversations that those customers are first willing to share their time with you and secondly, willing to really be open about uh, being transparent about their own data or do they sometimes hold back a little bit if, if they know that this is going to be published um, as a case study? Most customers are always very, like, very open and, and happy to, to talk about their experience. Um, and in most cases, I would say, yes, they're open to share, like, maybe if they're not open to share specific numbers, because it, like, it really depends, mm-hmm. they're like different type of companies. We have some, you know, big companies as well. Yeah. Um, I believe we also have some public companies. Well, I'm pretty sure actually we have some, you know, public companies. I, I don't know if I've, like any of the companies I've spoken to have gone public. I don't think so. But um, like even if they can't share actual numbers, they're always happy to share about how they use chart model mm-hmm. and like what kind of things they do with uh, yeah with it. That's actually what you're more interested in getting anyway, isn't it? Uh, is actually sure. yeah. innovative use cases because not only can you take that content and use that to attract new prospects, but do you? Um, I'm curious too. Do you also take that content and use that to? To show to existing customers who could be more active with the, with the platform and who you might be able to either upsell or just extract greater lifetime value from. Yes. Um, so both the sales team and the customer success team um, use the the customer stories. Mm-hmm. Um, we also have other kinds of content that's based on uh, if it's not like just our customers, but it's based on actual data. So. You know, whenever we see a chance to help our customers, mm-hmm. um, you know, do whatever like they're doing, reach their goals, um, we ha- we're happy to help with that because we know mm-hmm. that, you know, the success of our customers will immediately, like, eventually transform into our success as well. Mm-hmm. So always, you know, on the lookout for for helping um, yeah. prospects and customers. My opinion is that a lot of a lot of SaaS businesses don't invest enough in their current customers. And, and I'm not talking about customer support uh, or a customer success manager who's there to also um, address any issues as they come up, but more proactive by actually showing them uh, really in a proactive way, how they can get better use out of the product. Even if they're a loyal customer with stable revenue and. Um, they've already they've already made it past the, they're in that cohort of loyalty lifetime, but still getting them to showing them, hey, why don't you let's see how we can grow or expand into this other department in your company and add some seats or um, here's some use cases. And it's actually specifically a role that uh, I see as missing, which is to to try to improve the, the lifetime value of your current customers by showing them, really showing them explicitly the value that they're getting from the tool and showing them what more they could be doing with the tool. Um, yes, I agree with you. I think it's kind of surprising, provided that we've been talking about how important retention is, mm-hmm. you know, for subscription companies especially. I feel like we've been talking about it for, I don't know, five years at least. I've been hearing, you know, people talk about retention. And still too many companies focus so much on, you know, on acquisition. And retention is where, you know, great mm-hmm. SaaS businesses are made or, or, or broken. Yeah. Um, and I suspect one thing that's connected to this is um, how these types of companies monetize. Um, you know, talking about 
value-based pricing, usage pricing is now like a new trend that's emerging this year, I, I feel like. Um, and still, I think too many companies have like the, the pricing is pretty static. Maybe they have like proceed pricing, but proceed pricing is not necessarily, you know, seats are not necessarily what your customers care about. I mean, mm-hmm. seats work great for Slack, but that's where the value comes from because Slack is like it's a, it's a network. So the more seats you have, the more um, yeah. links you have in the in the in the network inside, inside the network. So mm-hmm. that's how, like, that's a value for, that's where the value comes from for, for customers of Slack. Mm-hmm. So it makes sense for Slack to use seats as a, as a value metric. But I'm not sure it makes sense for, you know, another type of company where you have maybe one or two people using the product, but they can be deriving so much value out of it that, you know, if you're trying to charge per seat, you're not getting mm-hmm. any, like, you're leaving too much value on the table for them. Mm-hmm. And I'm not saying that you should squeeze out every you know, last bit of, of value from your customers, but um, finding uh, the, the right balance allows you to you know, align yourself with the success of your customers. And in that case, mm-hmm. it's where you, we get to the point that what you're talking about, helping your existing, existing loyal customers be even better. That's when you know, your focus will change because you know, you know if, if you are charging more as your customers grow, then you know that you want them to grow. Mm-hmm. So that's a great, uh, a great segue into my next question about your own pricing structure at ChartMogul. And I, uh, for our listeners, I have, I have the website. We, we both have it up here. Actually, I hope we can look at it together. And I, I immediately see that there's some value-based pricing mechanism at play here because there's a sliding bar which is asking me what's my MRR. And I know that as I drag that, I'm going to see those month per month prices go up. Mm-hmm. But that's great, actually, because um, companies with higher revenues should pay more for the product. And I can see that what's going on is that the middle plan, the scale plan, is the one that, that is um, sensitive to this slider. And that's the value-based pricing. But we also have a free plan. The launch plan is, is uh, free forever? Yeah. It's, it's free forever. For less than 10K in MRR. Um, until you reach uh, 10K in MRR. Mm-hmm. Which for a starting company, I, th- I think it's, mm-hmm. it's a great, you know, it's it's giving you all the tools you need to track your vital metrics. Yeah. Um, without having to pay, you know, a dime for it. Yeah. And nobody can cheat you there because you actually are connecting to their payment platform. So you'll, you know what, uh, what their MRR is. Sure. Right. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So in the past, um, even before I joined the company, uh, we used to charge um, by the number of customers mm-hmm. that they get through the platform. But uh, what we saw with that is that um, the pricing was misaligned because we have some customers, let's say, imagine like a typical app that's you know selling to consumers. They might have thousands, tens of thousands of customers but low overall MRR, lower overall MRR because like a single customer is only contributing five bucks or something like that. Mm-hmm. And you can have like a huge uh, SaaS company that only has 500 or 1,000 customers, but their mm-hmm. MRR is, yeah. is, is higher because the average revenue per account is, mm-hmm. is much higher. And that's what, um, you know, made us change to this. So in those growth. situations, you could easily get stuck Overcharging certain companies and undercharging other companies because your pricing model is inflexible. Yeah, yeah, very much. Mm-hmm. Yeah, really interesting. Um, let's uh, let's pivot over to since we have the website open. Uh, m- most of my prior research leading up to this is because I assume that you have pretty um, broad ownership over the resources, uh, the library here, which includes. SAS resources, a SAS roundup, the blog, open mic, which is the podcast, SAS metrics refresher, and and even help center content. Do you touch do you touch all these areas in your work? Um, pretty much, yes. So I own the the blog, the weekly newsletter, and the resources section. Mm-hmm. Um, we have another piece uh, which is currently not linked from from that drop down menu you're looking at. But if you go to the SAS resources page, you'll see it. It's um, it's an extensive report we published last year on uh, SaaS pricing. 
So what we did mm -hmm. was to, you know, gather uh, data from over 600 uh, SaaS companies on on how they price the products, mm -hmm. which meant what uh, what it means is that we looked at their pricing pages, and that's how we, mm -hmm. uh, you know, did the analysis. Or were they all similar, B two B, or yes, uh, all of them were B two B SaaS. Mm -hmm. um, and we looked like we identified specific data points that we wanted to to look at. For example, are they using uh, value-based pricing? How many plans do they have on their pricing page? Do they have a custom plan, which is something like get in touch for enterprise pricing mm -hmm. um, or volume pricing? We call it volume pricing at uh, Chartmogul um, and and things like that. Um, and we collected all these data and we tried to analyze it, looking at it, all these all these companies. Mm -hmm. And it's been very well accepted. Uh, we launched launched it on Product Hunt uh, in November, I believe. Mm -hmm. uh, it was well accepted. I've heard from people who said, "Oh, I've seen this," you know, shared on our company Slack. Mm -hmm. um, because we don't. One thing that's interesting about our approach towards content marketing is that we don't gate any of our content. So if you mm -hmm. go to this resources page and you want okay. to access any, All these of the, cheat sheets. any of the cheat sheets, you won't be asked for your email. You can just go and download the cheat sheet and use it, uh -huh. uh, which makes it more challenging for us to track uh, the you know the influence of content marketing. But we we do it uh, you know in a very qualitative way because, for example, I have a question when I talk to customers for those customer stories that I mentioned. Mm -hmm. Um, I always ask, like, how did you hear about Chart Model? And I would say probably over eighty percent of the times it's content. You know, yeah. We searched on uh, um, Google uh, mm -hmm. and we found, you know, Chart Model, or someone sent mm -hmm. us one of your cheat sheets, or we saw this shared on uh, Slack group or something like that. And so no forms. And no for I, I believe that, that there's real fatigue now in the classic Absolutely. inbound marketing approach, which is to get uh, anything anything more complex than a blog post to get that behind a form. I, I believe that users are really not responding well anymore to that. And I also think just to, purely from a marketing and a data standpoint, if you ungate your content, you know that you're going to get that content in the hands of many, many more people than mm -hmm. you would if you gate it. But you're sacrificing an email capture, right? Sure. So that's your trade-off. But you can still put all of your remarketing pixels on that content. Uh, exactly. And anybody who doesn't proceed, you still you still have remarketing wide yep. wide open. So you might you might be sacrificing the inbox of a hundred people, um, but but you're gaining maybe a remarketing pixel of a uh, ten thousand people or something like that. Um, you know, don't don't focus on the numbers, but you're multiplying the size of, the, of your remarketing audience by ungating content. And I think that benefit drastically outweighs the cost of sacrificing a few email captures. Absolutely. And even be, you know, beyond remarketing, you have uh, tools like Clearbit that you can yeah, use just to enrich, enrich mm -hmm. your data and like learn who's coming to your site, who's reading your content. Um, you have tools like uh, you know, Leadfeeder, Metkuru, uh, who can help you, you know, identify some of the you know, the visitors to your website, what companies they're coming from. So yeah. maybe you, like if you're using account-based marketing, ABM. you it can help you connect with those companies or just yeah. identify them as, uh, as a good fit and start working mm -hmm. them uh, yeah. as leads um, and so on. Can I ask you about that report that you were just discussing where, where sure. you all surveyed about 600 mm -hmm. uh, SaaS companies? And I don't want to spoil it because I, I want people to go and look for this and find it. But how many of those 600 companies had some aspect or uh, some flavor of value-based pricing at work? Oh, uh, I cannot remember the exact uh, the exact numbers, but if, I think it was like 30%, maybe, which I found kind of okay. surprising. Surprisingly low? Yeah, surprisingly More, low, yeah. I would say. I guess the pricing is still one of those areas where I don't think there's really a rule book yet in SaaS. And, um, there are a couple of books that uh, people can read. Or established, I guess, established best practices that are really pervasive. Sure, sure. Um, 
so and what I'm you know what I'm saying 30% had value based pricing we we considered anything like seeds you know a value based pricing even if it's okay. not like a good mm-hmm. judgment of the value that a specific tool is providing okay but like we didn't have a chance to get into that kind of analysis so um uh we like we would just still consider that as a as a value based pricing uh but in terms of um um like resources on pricing on SaaS pricing um there's a book called monetizing innovation uh, which is like considered one of the really you know uh, quality resources mm-hmm. on the topic um open view uh, the the vc firm they're also doing a lot of on work on, mm-hmm. on pricing mm-hmm. yeah that's that's the one monetizing innovation by madhavan Ramunajam, sorry, I butchered that, but um, that looks interesting. Okay. Um, so yeah, OpenView, the, the you know the OpenView blog, and they have a few uh, reports they've produced as well. They they also mm-hmm. have some good resources on that. And I would also you know of course recommend the uh, the SaaS pricing masterclass is what we call it that we've put together, mm-hmm. um, mostly because it's based on actual data from from SaaS companies. Okay. So we try to any any analysis we don't try to like push our view on pricing on other companies, but we we actually try to see what what companies are doing. Yeah. Well, you have this such a unique vantage point as Chart Mogul because you you can see the the pricing models of all your customers and you have you have the revenue data flowing through and. Uh, and you can notice different patterns sure. and trends. For, for this report, we actually we, we used publicly available data. We just okay. went to the pricing pages and we took a screenshot of, of mm-hmm. pricing pages and we took that data about specific data mm-hmm. points, as I mentioned. Yeah. Uh, but By yes. the way, that is just a great idea for content. And it's easy, relatively easy to implement because um, it's data that's there. You just have to go out yeah, and, and the mold, grab it. The mode is just you know doing the work to collect all that data. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, and my vision is, and what I would like to do for the next edition of, of the master class is to put it at, you know, over 1000 SaaS companies. Mm-hmm. Um, we'll probably get to it later in, in the year. Uh, but yeah, I agree. And I believe it's one of the ways to, because we were talking about how people are getting tired of content and there's too much of it. And, uh, I think it's one of the ways in which you can, um, make your content interesting and, and engaging yeah uh, it's either through having access to some data which is gated in some in some way mm-hmm. or just doing the work and actually collecting that data mm-hmm. and, uh, that literally anyone can do but uh, you just put the work and you, you have to it. put in the work and, that, and now you have a tool that is probably the best benchmark for SaaS companies to what well, to benchmark their own pricing against against their peers whether that be Based on the the MRR or maybe a category, uh, or or stage, but yeah, that's that's a great idea. Let's talk now just about how you all uh, do content strategy at Chart Mobile, because it's it seems like this is a content machine that's are you you're practically putting out something almost every day, I assume. Am I right? Uh, every week would be okay. would be more accurate. Yeah. Because we, as I told you, we're focusing on getting the the quality right. Yeah. Do you do you all operate off of a editorial calendar? Yes, we mm-hmm. do. Um, I'm the owner of that. Uh, so you know our our approach towards that is um, finding the the cross section between you know knowing um, you know finding the topics where we know people have interest, uh, and that in in most cases for us that means um, doing keyword research and focusing on on SEO distribution mm-hmm. um, or like ranking well in, on Google, um, and then um, having something interesting to say about that topic. Mm-hmm. So for us, in many cases, it's writing on topics like, um, you know, how to. So one of the recent pieces of content we published was on how to define what type of SaaS we're building. So we try to, you know, put some kind of framework behind the different types of SaaS. Uh, and what we see repeatedly, and what, uh, I would just invite people to go and, and check out the article on our blog. But what we see mm-hmm. is that 
there are several types of SaaS companies. Some focus on going after a specific department within companies. So maybe they go after a sales department. Mm-hmm. And it doesn't matter what industry the company is in, they're just going after the sales department. Others go after a whole industry. So they try to produce uh, an end-to-end solution for the legal industry, you know, legal firms, mm-hmm. anything like that. There are some companies that go after both. So let's say um, CRM for uh, tourist agencies or something like that. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then there are companies that go really broad. Uh, so something like Notion can be used by any department in any, 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 yeah, type, anybody. Of, mm-hmm. any type of company, any type of industry. Um, uh, or we go after a, like a narrow topic, something like what is MRR and everything you need to know about MRR or everything you need to know about churn. Mm-hmm. Um, so yeah, we try to combine these. Like you know, we know that people care about churn because there are many like there's a lot of search traffic or search volume around churn and mm-hmm. you know types of churn, what's churn definition, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera, related topics. Or we just pick a topic where we have a really strong opinion mm-hmm. that we want to share, and we go with that. Mm-hmm. It sounds like also the the post about what type of uh, what type of SaaS are you building? Uh, that's that's the piece, right? That yeah. you were mentioning. Who was your primary persona for that? Uh, obviously, it's a SaaS company, but who who in who in the SaaS company do you want reading that? Um, I would say the founder. Mm-hmm. Um, so founders uh, and like senior. Uh, Operators are generally our like the, the bulk of our audience, mm-hmm. um, but but even beyond that, I think like pretty much every person in a SaaS company, uh, you know, should be familiar with these topics. Mm-hmm. Uh, it doesn't matter if you're a product owner or if you're in marketing or if you're doing sales, you should still understand like who you're selling to, who you're uh, building for, mm-hmm. uh, and so on. Yeah. We actually did a webinar yesterday about website UX for SaaS companies. And one of the biggest themes was that many SaaS company websites that we look at, they don't have pages that explicitly let the personas see themselves in those in those pages, mm-hmm. such as if I'm selling specifically a solution for uh, HR, HR managers, then I might say I have a maybe a HR managers in IT companies or HR managers in retail or maybe HR managers in another type of company. But it's a good idea to have those use cases or those personas very visible from the main navigation so that those those people, when they land, they can self-identify very quickly. Yeah. That, oh, I'm, I'm this person. I'm, I'm HR in an IT company. Or on the flip side, you could have the, the other approach, which is if you're if you're not so much role specific, but more industry specific, then you could say we have a SaaS solution that's for the legal industry. And then here are some different problems. You have a problem with uh, managing compliance. You might have another problem doing this. But here's a few use cases again of, uh, of just pain points in your industry that our tool solves. And a lot of times the point of the point of, of yesterday was that uh, so many of these SaaS companies are eager to display their features and benefits. Mm-hmm but they're often missing the persona use cases. And that belongs at the yeah. same level of information architecture, the same, you know, if, if you have a few top navigational links, it belongs at the same par- same level as the features or perhaps even yeah. higher. Yeah, uh, I agree. Yeah, because not everybody wants to immediately just start researching features. They want to see, um, is this something that solves my problem? And if you, if you know that yeah. problem and you tell them right away, then they, they want, identify. They want to see that you get them that you understand them when they land on your page. Um, and I I think it's an instinct, but I still see too many homepages, even like homepages of SaaS companies that are just too preoccupied with the company. Like, this is what we do. This is who we are. Mm-hmm. And I, I, I remember as, a, as an example, uh, Basecamp, you know, the project management tool, um, I think they've changed their homepage since, but mm-hmm. if you use something like the internet archive or whatever the wayback machine or whatever that site was called maybe you can find the, the actual mm-hmm. landing page and i remember like you open the page and you have this really interesting um almost like a cartoon of a person who's like 
their lives are a complete mess. I think they're like, I don't know if their like hair was burning or something like that. And it just says, we've been expecting you because they know like who's coming to their website looking for the solution. It's people who are feeling super busy, like they need to put order in their life, in their work life. Mm-hmm. Um, and it just spoke so well to that specific persona. I thought it mm-hmm. was brilliant. I'm not sure why they changed it, to be honest, but I, I yeah. thought it was brilliant. Yeah. Probably just the testing cycles and they, they moved on. Yeah. I think they had it for a while. So uh-huh. um, Interestingly, we were uh, showcasing Typeform in the webinar. Mm-hmm. And literally when we were when we were rehearsing for the webinar, Typeform's homepage uh, changed from the day before to the day of the webinar. And it's clear that they're cycling through a lot of A-B testing, but the entire... Yeah. Uh, headline calls to action creative I think that's uh, was, you know was that, that makes a great point that you should always be experimenting with these things and you should including your pricing um, so I feel like that's one of the things that I hear a lot of people talk about is that like m- too many SaaS companies leave their pricing static they just find something it seems to be working and they're afraid to touch it while they should be you know, really experimenting with it to find the best monetization model. Mm-hmm. And I think MailChimp is famous for this. They went through, I don't know, maybe 10 different, completely different pricing structures. Mm-hmm. Now they have a fairly, you know, common three or four tiers, mm-hmm. uh, something like that. But, you know, they had um, usage pricing. Uh, at some point of time, they were charging per you know, number of emails sent. Now they have contacts, number mm-hmm. of contacts as the value metric. Um, so... Did they allow their users to either stick with their plan if they wanted to, to be grandfathered, they could hold on to their plan or did they force the users to migrate to the new pricing? I'm, I'm not sure, to be honest. Uh-huh. Um, I think I think they were grandfathering, but they might have moved users to, mm-hmm. to new pricing sense. Are you in favor of, of A-B testing pricing, um, not in a sequence, but but actually in a, in a parallel fashion where certain, either certain countries might get unique pricing or certain types of users? Or do you think that runs the risk that people will get pissed off if they realize that somebody else paid less than they did at the same time? Um, well, it depends what you mean when you say A-B, A-B testing. If it's just like the regular A-B testing, the way you A-B test the website, I don't know, but like experimenting with your pricing and changing pricing structures, yeah, I'm definitely in favor of. Yeah, for example, if um, if you see that the, the the churn rate is particularly high um, in a certain geography, and um, you know, in in certain countries, maybe they're the people are just not willing to put down the credit card or something like that. Maybe mm-hmm. experimenting with lower pricing on that basis while still maintaining sure. higher prices somewhere else. Sure. And not necessarily lower pricing, but just different ways to yeah. price. Um, and uh, of course I'm in favor with, uh, of that because it's, you know, it's what we provide for. And we actually have customers. I recently spoke to a customer who, who's using chart mogul to, to do exactly that. They're looking at because they're like doing, um, uh, you know, geographic expansion now they have like their main market is the UK but they're moving into other regions and they're looking at their customers by by market which might be just one country the UK or a region like mm-hmm. a group of countries but they're doing that they're looking at specific regions yeah they're seeing how customers are performing and they're adjusting their strategy to yeah you know, they go to market strategy for that specific region in order to because their focus is on when they go into a market, they want to dominate that market. Yeah. They want to be the premier solution. Even uh, Netflix charges different prices in, in Bulgaria versus US, I've noticed. Sure. Um, I would and say I that's probably do, yeah. much more common in in like for consumer products. Yeah. Um, yeah. Because I, I feel like consumers are much more price sensitive than, than businesses. Mm-hmm. So yeah. I guess I guess it makes sense for I know Spotify also had charges less in Bulgaria, I believe. So I think so, yeah. So sure, and if you're like going after, you want to uh, gain a foothold in a in a market and make sure you don't have like a competitor who who takes it from you um, mm-hmm. because you consider yourself too big for that market, that's that's probably fine. 
Yeah. Let's come back to the content marketing because I'm really curious sure. as to the, the workflow that you all have at Chart Mogul. And um, I assume, and, and you can walk me through this, but I assume that, that you've got an editorial calendar and before a piece of content gets actually written, there's some sort of a brief or a structured outline that gets created that, that boils in the keyword research and other, other elements. Yes. And then um, probably there's also an editorial phase that, that has to go through some quality control it gets published and then there's a probably a promotional phase. Mm -hmm. um, could you just walk us through the, the entire end-to-end -end workflow or sure. life cycle of a single piece yeah. of content? So um, we have a process, it's not super structured, but it's like, you know, the process we try to follow is, um, you know, every piece of content pretty much has three stages, like the production has three stages. The first stage is the outline. Um, and I call that the 50% stage. So when you are done with the outline, that specific blog post or whatever it is should be mm -hmm. about 50% done. So you should have like the the argument laid down. You should know what the you know what the main uh, ideas, arguments, examples uh, you're using are. So if you give that outline to an editor or to someone else on the team to review they should get a pretty good feeling of what the final article will look like. Uh, and that's why I call it the 50%. Then the first, the first draft is the 90% uh, you know, stage where after you write the first draft, um, you know, uh, all those arguments from the outline should be written out and then mm. you should have the, you know, the, the, the main bulk of the work done. And then the second draft is, just another, you know, adds another 10% where you're looking at like things like, you know, language, style, voice and tone, very important. Mm -hmm. um, and just making small corrections, but like you're not making big changes to how mm -hmm. uh, the text flows, what arguments you're using and things like that. And this gives you, uh, because, um, you know, content requires different, sorry, it requires domain knowledge, but it also requires writing skills. Mm -hmm. And it's like, if you are working on the two at the same time, it's very easy to lose that, you know, to waste time because you have to go back and forth. Mm -hmm. So this kind of process, you know, it allows you to focus on specific things at each stage mm -hmm. and not waste that time going, you know, going back. So once you reach the final stage where you're looking at how, you know, the writing, Mm -hmm. You know, going back and making changes to arguments, examples. Yeah. So the people with the domain knowledge need to be the people writing the first draft, I presume, correct? Oh, it depends. Often. It de yeah, in, in some mm -hmm. cases. Um, so the, the content team is, is pretty small. Like I'm the, you know, full-time content owner at Chartmogul and the other people on the team who are also helping by, you mm -hmm. know, writing. But what we try to do is we because we have people in sales and customer success and product and so on, who have that domain knowledge about specific areas. Um, so we try to combine that and I'm trying to help them get that knowledge out of them. Mm -hmm. So if they need support with the writing, with how they're structuring the arguments and yeah. so on, I'm helping with that. So just to be clear, you're actually somehow coercing your colleagues to Pretty write much. blog posts, Pretty even much. though it's not in their job descriptions. Pretty much, I guess you can say that. Yeah, because we, we face that all the time. And um, that's, is that a challenge? Uh, well, you know, my, my co-works are great. Um, and in many cases, it's not me who's coercing anybody. They just come to me and they say, I, I have this idea. Oh, I want to share this with mm -hmm. our audience. Can yeah. you help me get it out? So you've got that culture already established. We do, great. yeah, we do yeah. because we've seen. Um, so Chartmogul is about uh, you know over six years old now, the company, and we've seen in the past six years that content is you know the best channel for for us. Mm -hmm. and, you know, as I told you, you know, I interview customers all the time, and they tell me, you know, they discover Chartmogul by you know through content. Mm -hmm. So I think I have a pretty good understanding of the workflow to get a piece of content out the door and published. What happens once you hit publish? Uh, the magic, the magic yeah. happens. Sit back, watch the traffic, the flood of traffic. Come. No, no, not really. Um, and that's something, you know, I don't want to like leave your 
listeners with the wrong impression that it's just you do something and you put it out and you forget about it and it just happens uh, you know on its own um, you have to do at least as much work after you published after you publish a piece of content uh, than before you do uh, and that means you know it's not just about being spammy it's not just sharing on Twitter all the time or sharing on LinkedIn but finding ways to connect with um, the people who will find this piece of content interesting. And in some cases, it might be proactive, like one-on-one outreach, just you know, knowing someone that will find that useful and just mm-hmm. sending them a message and say, hey, I, you know, I'm sure you'll, you'll like this. Mm-hmm. Um, one of our main channels right now is our newsletter. Uh, which is called the SaaS Roundup. Um, I would invite your listeners to check it out. And we use the newsletter to share content we publish during the week. So it goes out every week on, mm-hmm. on Friday. The, the last issue just went out earlier today. Um, so we use that to, to promote our own content. But the mm-hmm. main focus of the SaaS Roundup, and that's why it's called the Roundup, is collecting three links the three best links on SaaS from the week. So mm-hmm. just relevant, timely content that we know our audience will find useful. Mm-hmm. Um, and how often do those three links contain something that you've produced? So, well, the three links are just that. There's three links from, from other sources. but Always we, external. Not always external. Stuff. But we always share at least one mm-hmm. uh, piece of content from, from us. Okay, and, so it's like um, a three plus one. Yeah, and, and, and a while ago, we also like refreshed the newsletter a little bit. And now we also share something like an interesting thread from Twitter that on, mm-hmm. on SaaS again, or an interesting video or a podcast episode. Uh, so when mm-hmm. this goes live, I'll probably share it in the newsletter to, to bring it to our audience. Mm-hmm. Um, but our focus there with the newsletter is really to provide value to our audience first and foremost mm-hmm. because the audience of the newsletter is not just customers and users of Charmogo and it's it's open to everyone so mm-hmm. we you know we want to be useful to the audience first uh, and only then if they think uh, you know we deserve it and our content deserves it only then to promote our, it, yeah. our own content so you see SEO as a distribution channel i totally agree you have the newsletter where you are uh, Re- repurposing in a way that content and and getting um getting it in front of your your list. Mm-hmm. Do you do any paid promotion of the content? Uh, not really. We've done some in the past, but it's like limited. I would say we use some tools like um, Cool, which is Q U U U Promote, Cool Promote, mm-hmm. um, and um, there's another one which I can't remember the name of right now. Um, Anyways, I'll, mm. I'll remember it. Um, of course, we share on, twi- on our Twitter account, LinkedIn mm-hmm. page. Uh, we share on Angel List and you know relevant communities. Um, I also participate in quite a few Slack communities around content growth marketing. Mm-hmm. And if there's a good opportunity to share it there, I'll, I'll do that as well. But um, again, you know, we always try to be very helpful with our content mm-hmm. first, of, first and foremost. Yeah, great. And over the your entire tenure at Chart Mogul, um, what would you say, uh, big picture here? What would you say would be the impact of all, all the content marketing efforts to the bottom line of, of the business? Uh, I'm not sure I can put it in any like, you know, in any numbers or anything like that. But I think it's it's it has a huge effect. Um, not just as an acquisition tool or a sales enablement tool, but above all as a brand building tool. Uh, and I've kind of mentioned that already a mm-hmm. few times that, you know, people always like one of the first uh, connections people have with the Charmogo brand is the content we're putting out. Mm-hmm. And that's why, uh, you know, because I feel like the, the gatekeeper of our content program, I would never sacrifice the the quality of of the content we put out, uh, just because it's it will take a while probably before we notice how it's affecting the brand, even if it's an, in a negative way. But once we do, it will be too late. So we have to mm-hmm. be really careful with that. Yeah. 
it, it's it takes a long time to build up a reputation, but it can be destroyed and uh, in pretty quickly. Yeah, yeah. Um, this has been great, and there's so much more I want to ask you. I I see we're almost. Uh, I think we're at about an hour already, and um, exactly, in fact. And I guess we we're gonna have to wrap it up. Um, but this has been fantastic, Ilya. Thank you. Is there thank is you. there anything that I didn't ask you that uh, that you'd like to share? I'm sure there are quite a few things you didn't ask me, but uh, yeah, I have we, I have we a list of things leave, we won't get you know, to. Yeah. We'll leave these for the next episode. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> for the sequel. Great. Well, thanks very much. I really enjoyed it. And thank you. It was um, a pleasure. Yeah. Hopefully, you'll you'll come back and we'll do this again. Sure. I'll right. be glad to.